The only person who knew about my ADHD was my ex-wife. Nobody knew because I, I just, it was like, that explains a lot, but it's not good news kind of thing. Anyway, long story short, that really impacted me. And I ended up telling Francis and she did this beautiful Francis thing. She went, oh, I knew. And I was like, shit. <laughs> was that that obvious? <laughs> well, I thought I was like, I thought I was better at hiding it. But she went, oh, I didn't know what you got but I knew you were different and that's why I wanted you to work for me. And that took everything that I thought about who I was and it's literally turned my world upside down. And that set me on this journey. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld, and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. On this episode of Revolving Door Syndrome, we're talking about ADHD. They say at a rough estimate, maybe one in 20 to one in 10 people have ADHD. And one of the difficulties that we have in New Zealand is how difficult it is for people to get a diagnosis of ADHD. In the public system, people are having to go months to years to get this diagnosis by seeing a psychiatrist or a pediatrician. And then if they need medicine, they need to be reassessed for ADHD again in two years time. Now, if you want to go private, you can do that, but also costs you a couple of People with ADHD have increased risks of substance use, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder. And today on this episode, we've got Rich Rowley, who was a lawyer. He's done studies in computer science. He was a teacher, educator, and now runs the observatory, which helps businesses. I don't know how you would describe that. We show the value of neurodiverse brains in (laughs) terms of solving business problems. Okay. So, Rich, why do you think it matters that we get things right for people with ADHD? Easy answer. The world's a bit fucked (laughs) and we need to get better at solving problems. And the last, I suppose the last, I don't know, 10, 14 years of my life, I've been working in large-scale organisational change and realising that it's just bloody hard and it happens at a snail's pace. And at the same time as being involved in that, I got the first of my diagnoses, which was ADHD, and really had a different experience of work because the organisation that I was working for was actually really inclusive. And I ended up in a weird position of having this immense value proposition to businesses and organisations I'm autistic as well, so I was just, it's my special interest, one of them. I was really deeply interested by systemic organisational change and why it's hard, and also the role of me and my particular cognition in that narrative, and realising just how stupidly we've built the world. So there's a framework that I use to understand how the world works and my position in it. So the framework's called Kinefin. It's Welsh for habitat, and it was developed by a guy called Dave Snowden. And that framework splits the world up into four habitats of different complexity from simple through to chaotic. Dave Snowden uses it in quadrants. I like to think of it as a continuum. So on the left-hand side, you've got the simple problem space going all the way across to the right, which is chaotic. And what we've done is we've designed an education system that literally just looks at that simple box. So I look at human cognition as one system. And if we think that humans are like an agile system, so by that, the human race goes up against these four different problem habitats. It's simple, complex, complicated, chaotic. Broadly speaking, you can split it in the middle. So towards the chaos side, that's uncertainty. Towards the simple side, that's certainty. So you've got an uncertain side and a certain side with gradients in between. 
And so if you think about human cognition as a whole system, it iterates itself against those four environments. And like I said, I was really interested in what's the role of, like, why does my cognition still exist? We're human beings. Why haven't we evolved why out? Why haven't we evolved out? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why, how, why are people like me here? Why are people with autistic brains here? Why are the dyslexic brains still here? We're here because I believe that we've evolved cognitive diversity to fill these different habitats. The challenge is that we've built a school system that literally just looks at the simple habitat. So if you're like me, you go into that box and you get told you're disruptive, you're wrong, you're broken, you've got a learning disability. Because that box was never built for my kind of cognition. Most scientists, most researchers come from that box. They tend to be neurotypical with ableist perspectives. They look at people like me like I'm broken, that I'm wrong, that something needs fixing. Which, if you extrapolate that out, that's like saying evolution's broken, right? Because human cognition's part of a natural system. So looking at people whose cognition doesn't fit in that school box and labeling them as having a learning disability or whatever, I just think that's, it's ludicrous, it's wrong, and it's damaging. So slowly, I'm learning to love my cognition. I love my ADHD. I love my autism. I love all the other wonderfully named comorbidities that I've got as well, because they mean I think differently. And what I've come to realize is that different thinking has got immense value in terms of solving problems. Right, because if you keep doing things the way that it's always been done and you expect a different result, then that's insanity, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the world's pretty bloody insane when you stop and looking at it. All of the years I've been in New Zealand, the government spent hundreds and hundreds of millions and trying to shift the tail of underachievement in education, particularly for Maori Pacifica. It's not changed a jot, you know, and it's moved tinily. And it, I'm like, but you're stupid because you're throwing all the money in the wrong box. How would you change like the education system? Oh, I wouldn't. I'm quite happy for the current system to stay exactly how it is. I've tried to change it in all sorts of ways. And what I've realised is it's so hard and so intractable. It ended up making me mentally unwell, trying to do that and getting disillusioned with it. Then I got, because where I work was amazing, my boss Francis gave me the opportunity to go and do it with corporates. And at first I was like, holy shit, the corporates, they'll be dead easy to change. First big organisation I think I worked for was Air New Zealand, you know, airline of the year, wow. I was like, wow, change will be amazing. And they're like, we'll get so much done so quickly. But no, what I realised was that all of the same challenges around changing education, corporates are facing all the same challenges for all the same reasons. And so, once again, this is why I love my cognition. I had to find a different way. So the long-term goal of what we're doing is to develop a totally different model of education. My problems in life now are not because of my ADHD or anything else. It's because of the damage that was done to me by trying to interface with a world that doesn't recognise my cognition or value. What was it like when you were growing up? Fucking awful. Like when I was a kid, I can't really... I've had some trauma stuff that happened when I was younger. So before about 11, I can't really remember too much. My parents were in class. They wanted me to get a good education to change change your lives, not live the life that they'd had having to work really bloody hard. So they worked really hard and to send me and my brother and sister to a private school. And I remember going to that school and hating it. I was not engaged with anything, thought I was stupid. It was a British public school, so I used to get hit a lot by teachers. And I left that thinking I was stupid and useless. That narrative continued for most of my life. Even when I had jobs, they were all a struggle and I couldn't really articulate why. It was really challenging. And it wasn't until I was, God, how old was I? 42 when I went to work for Francis at the Mind Lab and experienced a startup culture where we built our own culture and it was genuinely inclusive. I realised, holy shit, just how much effort I'd been putting in just to keep my head above water every day. What do you think you were doing to try and keep your head above water? Masking pretending. What did you have to do to pretend? Pretend most of the time, 
keep my fucking mouth shut. People think you're arrogant and that you're rude. And it's not that. It's like I've got this real strong sense of social justice. I think the world's shit. It's totally inequitable and we need to change it. And I've always had that in me ever since I was a kid. And it's even more pronounced now that I'm an adult because I've got kids myself and I want to change everything for them. Back to the ADHD. What was it that made you realise, hey, maybe I should go seek the diagnosis? I was literally just having a conversation with a friend who I was working with who made an offhand comment about me and my ADHD. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he was take, like, it just takes somebody to be like, maybe you've got ADHD. Yeah. Right? And he was like, oh shit, sorry. I thought you knew. And I was like, what do you mean? And like, he worked in the mental health field and he was like, oh, I'll send you a form through. <laughs> and he sent me through this kind of, I can't remember, four-page questionnaire with tick boxes. And I can remember sitting that. And it was like somebody had done a tick box form to my life. Do you lose things? Like every single one, it was like, yes. So that led to me gaining. Fortunately, I was in a position where I could go private. That led me to get my first diagnosis. And it was interesting because that it explained a lot. Because I'd always felt like a fucking alien. When I was at school, the consequences for me not doing homework when I was at school were that I would pretty much be certain to get a bit of a thrashing by a teacher. Because that was the kind of school Gosh. it was. I could never do homework. And I'd be wandering around the fields where my parents lived thinking, I've got this work to do, I should be doing it but not being able to do it and just not understanding why. So getting the diagnosis explained a lot. What were the things that you were like, oh, that was the ADHD? Oh, fucking everything. Everything in my life, like not being able to find keys, my 20 years of drug abuse, really just everything, the whole of my life. If you go online and Google ADHD assessment, every single thing was like, holy shit, that's me. That's Why do you my think life. that there's like a link between having ADHD and your substance use? One it's to do with that. My understanding is we have the dopamine shit in my brain's a bit fucked, right? <laughs> so neurotypical people wake up with a certain level of dopamine in the brains, which I just don't get that. Of course, when I was a kid and started experimenting, it's holy shit, that kind of levels the playing field a lot. I always used to think about myself as like a greedy drug user as well, because I always had much more capacity than most of the people that I knew. And once again, realizing that was just me. What would, what kind of level of mind-altering substances would satisfy neurotypical people would just make me normal and I'd want more. <laughs> and the other answer is as well, it was fucking good fun as well. Like when you get told that you're naughty at school, you begin to believe that and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like when you're given this label, then you fulfilled the label. Yeah, yeah. It's And I still struggle with this at the moment. In my head, there's a set of scales. There's good rich and there's bad rich. Like those scales are not even, bad rich is still winning. That's why I put so much effort into doing what I do at the moment, because I'm trying to, in my head, balance those scales and unfuck that narrative that I've been told about myself. It's only in the past few years I've got a new relationship with a wonderful person. She's a doctor, our eldest. He had an autism diagnosis. He's recently got ADHD and he's exactly the same as me. And she's like, you're autistic too. And it's holy shit. Yes, I am. Because actually, if you do a Venn diagram of ADHD and autism, most of the symptoms are like sitting in the middle. So we've just got these dumbass labels for things. There's always like the positives and negatives to having a label, right? Positives yeah. is being able to access help. And like you say, yeah. having the label of having ADHD means you can be like, oh, okay, this is why I'm different. This is why I'm like yeah. this. It's good to know that you're a normal zebra, not an unusual <laughs> horse. Yeah. And that's it. That's how it felt when I got diagnosed. It was like, oh, wow. So there is a reason I'm like this. So the DSM is what we use in psychiatry, psychology to categorise people with mental and neurodevelopmental issues, we'll call Disorders. it. Right? Disorders. <laughs> and if you go through the criteria, slightly different between children and adults, but I think most of the criteria has actually been formed on children, which makes it more difficult to use them on adults. Not just children, male children. As in the criteria has been validated on male children. Yeah, yeah. so if, yeah. You're, if you're female, you're doubly fucked by the system because particularly ADHD, it's all fucking naughty boys that all the research has been by because girls 
and women, it manifests differently. It's quite often not until women are reaching like perimenopause, it's called, that a lot of the symptoms actually begin to get noticed. Because it's interesting, right? Because the different criteria for ADHD in the DSM, there's like the whole bunch of things that are for like attention deficit or whatever, losing the keys, unable to focus on tasks, whatever. And then the hyperactive side, you know, interrupting people, always like <laughs> on the loose, can't sit still, all that kind of stuff. But the kicker is it has to impair and real function in two different places for kids, like at school and at home or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's necessarily essential to have an impairment in function to necessarily have ADHD. Because for example, if you look at what you've achieved, Rich, like on paper, you've got a law degree, you've got a master's in this, you're a teacher, all these sort of things. On paper, would you say that somebody who has no, an impairment in function? Joke. It's no. ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's like by anybody's standards, like for me, I've not achieved anywhere near my capability. The world's built by neurotypical people for neurotypical people. Like, we're playing a loaded game. But by anybody's standards, I've achieved. Being a lawyer, that's aspirational for a lot of people. I got a law degree without ever going to university. I was just consuming shitloads of drugs and going raving because it was more interesting. But I managed to get a law degree. My master's even, I was still a heavy drug, even heavier drug user when I was doing my master's. And it was computer science. So I had to build a thing which I was really interested in that I really enjoyed. But then I had to write a dissertation and I literally sat down 24 hours before it was due and banged it out in a day. And I got a distinction for it. Do I feel worthy and valuable? No, I still feel like I was cheating the system because that's the way the world's made me feel about it. I should have been putting in this sustained effort over a period of weeks and months and years to get that qualification, whereas I just sat down and banged it out in a day. And I've been made to believe that's wrong. And so I don't, yes, I have achieved by well by anybody's standards. I don't feel that because of how I've done it. I do workshops for corporates. And I did a conference the other week for big diversity conference. And it was in October and sometime in July, they sent me an email going, oh, could you please send your slide deck through like in God, beginning of September or something? And I just emailed them back and I was going, I'd like to say yes, but I've got ADHD. And the honest answer is I'll still be doing my slides when I turn up to do my talk. And I was, because that's how my brain works. And so trying to actually be kinder to myself and not making it a bad thing. So it's only a disability if it's in the context that isn't suited to, you know, how somebody is. Yeah, I laugh that I'm classed as disabled. And it's great because it's leverage for me. (laughs) It is, because I hate interacting with banks and organisations like that because I find it really challenging. I struggle with emotional regulation. Even though I'm not angry, I come across as being angry vocally because I can't control my tone. And so if ever I know that I've got to have one of those conversations, I always start, I'm just letting you know at the start of this conversation... I'm disabled. And that means that you've got a higher level of duty of care to me. And if you're failing to meet my requirements, I need you to pass me on to somebody else who can actually handle. It's just bloody leverage. I'm not disabled. The challenge around this conversation is, so there's talk now about having a new class of autism, severe autism, because all of these things are a spectrum, right? And some people who are really on the far end are disabled. They're not disabled by the world like I am. They have problems. So it's not to say that's not a serious issue and that we need to address that and get better at it and give better support, particularly to the families of those people, because it's awful because of the lack of support that you get from the medical profession, from the state. It's horrendous. So I'm by no means making light of that. Like I say, it is a spectrum. You've got people like me who are incredibly functional. So like my kind of cognition, just throw problems at me all the time. That's where my brain was meant to be. My brain sings when I'm just trying to solve problems. I love it. But as soon as you want me to write the book about how you solve the problem or do the presentation about how you solve the problem, no fucking interest in that. Because guess what? That's somebody else with a different kind of cognition who needs to step in and hand it all down. So So what do you think of the gifts of being neurodiverse? There's a beautiful animation that I saw a, a few years ago, which talks about innovation being about connecting dots, right? And so when I think about, say, neurotypical people, the dots that neurotypical people can join together are actually 
fairly close. I've just got this bigger volume of dots, which can help organizations if you're trying to solve a problem. I had to describe kind of what my brain does. It does systems judo. I can look at systems like incredibly complex systems and strip away the bullshit. So I like money. I used to rail against capitalism. I used to be like a proper anarchist, but anarchists... <laughs> You get nowhere because it's just standing outside throwing rocks and they just bounce off. So you've got to be in the system to change it. I didn't understand how money worked because I was not interested in it and thought it was all a bit stupid. I've got no problem at all now with the market economy, but I had to understand how the world works. And money's a really important part of it. I just think the flow of money's stupid. So at the moment, money comes into these organisations and systems and it all gets funneled up to benefit a few people at the top. That's just ridiculous. All you have to do is flip the flow. So like our organization, we want a massive flow of money, of revenue coming into our organization because the more we get, the more impact we can have. All we've done is take a system that prevents it from ever going up to a few shareholders at the top and forces it all the time, constantly. To reinvest to in the community. To go down and out to the community. That's it. Like, we have a charity, but it runs like a business. We will accept philanthropy to turbocharge our educational initiatives, but actually we run like a business. We operate in the real world. We go to businesses and say, look, there's huge amounts of business value in what we're doing. We want to generate revenue. We want to compete with other businesses. And we believe that what we offer, there's nothing like it and it's better than anything that they've ever had. So what is it that the observatory offers to businesses? What it's fundamentally about is organisational change. Just getting better, being better places to work, being better at practising agile and being better at practising lean, which really are just philosophies. Lean is about Kaizen, which means change for good, okay? Emphasis on the good. And agile gets a bit of a bad rap because how it's often implemented in businesses, they focus on processes and tools. But agile to me is a philosophy. And the first two lines of the agile manifesto say it's about valuing people and relationships more than processes and tools and responding to change rather than following a plan. And organizations always struggle with implementing that because organizations say change is hard. Yes, it is. But change isn't the problem. Everybody can and will change. The problem is uncertainty. So if we go back to that Kinefin narrative where the right-hand side of Kinefin towards chaos is uncertain, the left-hand side is certain, organizations try to do change in the same way. They'll go, we need to go agile. And a lot of people who need that certainty over in the left-hand side because they've got the kind of cognition that needs, they need all the boxes ticked. That's what makes their brains happy. And that's a beautiful thing. But like quite often the organization doesn't know the answers. And so they're trying to drag these people along and change them where they can't answer the questions. And so like we take a whole organization and try and shift the whole organization in terms of cognition all at the same time, which to my mind stupid. That's why we've got complementary cognition because I love uncertainty. That's my happy space. I hate certainty. I find it stifling and fucking mind-numbingly boring. But this is it. So who are the people in an organisation who've got the cognition, who can handle the uncertainty? Do you guys help businesses identify these people? How it works, in my head, if you think about neurodiverse people and neurotypical people, it's two spheres, right? So neurotypical people would be a ball, and then surrounding that is another bigger ball of neurodiverse people. So... The aim of our certification is to make work a better experience for neurodiverse people. Because guess what? If you make that experience better for the outliers, it automatically includes the neurotypical people. So it's about making work better for everybody. The other thing is, it's a how we do it. We practice agile, right? So the concept is employee experience design. So we use all the business tools that businesses are already using for customer experience design and user experience design and get them to turn it inwards on themselves. So what that means is we do this thing called journey mapping, where you create a journey map of the different phases of work and look at where you're not meeting people's needs. 
And then we co-create interventions and measures that may have an impact and improve things. And how the neurodiverse thing comes in at the moment, we talk about Kinefin, and because at the moment there's no kind of real assessment for it. So what we say is, are you more on the right to uncertain? Is that where you're more comfortable? Or are you more on the left? And that's it. So at the moment it's broad brush strikes. But what we're doing, we're collaborating with a researcher called Chloe Cameron over in Vancouver. So we're actually developing a cognitive traits test. It doesn't exist at the moment. So... We want to develop a test which eventually we hope would become a game because people are really shit like self-reporting on tests. So we want to take that out of it eventually. But we want to come up with a test that will allocate people. This is where you sit in Kinefin. So over time, organizations will get an understanding of we've got these people with this kind of cognition. We're letting them down in recruitment. We're letting them down in onboarding and whatever cognition that is and just going, this is your cognitive habitat. This is where we're not meeting you. And then co-creating interventions and testing them to see how they work and iterating them. And not just one business doing it. So every business that engages with us, you have to collaborate. This is too big for one business to solve. So as we share the understanding, we share the interventions, we share what works, we share what doesn't work. To really do an agile transformation, you have to get people practicing and believing in agile. How do you do that? You have to get them emotionally engaged with it. And we get people who care about neurodiversity initially. They're our initial stakeholders in organizations. So we get them engaging with us, improving what work looks like for them by practicing agile. And once you've done that and seen the benefits for yourself, then you believe in agile, then it gets a whole load easier to practice it on your customers. And guess what? Nobody knows the numbers. If you do a bell curve of neurodiversity and neurotypical population, 68% neurotypical, 32% neurodiverse, that's a massive portion of your employees, of your customers with different And there's a huge amount of value in acknowledging that difference. And so certification is about beginning that journey to help businesses understand how to leverage this different cognition. Your people are your best asset. The observatory also does brain badge for schools as well. That's coming. So the idea is we need $750,000 to develop brain badge for schools. So The model is, ideally, all of that revenue, all that money to do that project should come from business. But businesses are slow to adopt and we've had COVID and all of that. So we will accept philanthropy to turbocharge that. But what we're going to do is take this product that we've co-created with New Zealand's most innovative, biggest businesses. We're going to give that away free to teachers and schools all over the world whether it's early childhood through to tertiary, whether it's public, private, integrated, no matter what, everything that we do for education is always going to be free. So we're developing this amazing world-class product with businesses that they pay a lot of money for. We're going to give it away free to schools. And with the brain badge for schools, is it about the students or is it about the staff? No. So once again, we start with teachers. It's about teachers doing it on themselves first, looking at their, looking at work, work as a product and looking at teachers as customers and how do you improve the experience of being a teacher? And then once they've practiced it and learned it, remember that collaborative constructionist and constructivist approach, once they've learned it by practicing it on themselves and built the built a real deep understanding and engagement with it, then they just flip it around and go, how do we make it a better experience for our learners? That's what we do. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I'm passionate that there's this natural cognitive system to solving problems. We're starting on a journey and figuring this out. And what we learn with businesses, we give away to schools. And then our charity, we need $50 million to set up our own school, private school, but free for kids, where we're not just looking at that simple box. We're going to look at all the problem habitats of Kinefin. The school's going to have to operate in the real world. How are you wanting to do it differently from conventional schools? We looked at education as a system and said, what should an output of an education system be? And the answer that we came up with was that you should have everything that you need 
to have a fulfilling life. So then you look at what does having a fulfilling life look like? There's a Japanese concept called Ikigai. It's like what you're good at, what the world needs, what you can get paid for. Can't remember the other one off the top of my head at the moment. And Ikigai is this kind of fulfillment bit in the middle where you're getting paid to be who you are and add value to yourself and your community. At the moment, you see our challenge is getting traction. It's slow, right? So one way that we can turbocharge what we're doing is by setting up a limited company, right? Which I'm almost philosophically opposed to, but the charity can be a very large shareholder in that, right? Nobody will invest in a charity because you get nothing out of it, right? So we need to make it appealing for investors. But the idea is like once Brain Badge is going, and the ambition with that is to go global. We are going to compete against traditional management consulting businesses. I believe that we've got something that's better for business than their model. We want to play in the big boys' pond, get huge amounts of revenue coming in that the charity can then fund the school to set up its own businesses so we won't need to water down the model at all. So all of your needs are met, your family's needs are met, but your community's needs are met too. Human beings deserve fulfilling work. They deserve to be looked after, have the needs met. When you're one of the few at the top, how do you stay at the top when everybody else is at the bottom? By making them work so hard to meet the selfish needs that they can't operate at an altruistic level. And so what we want to do is bake altruism into our business model, is we want to do business that provides for the people who are in that system, but provides for all of the community as well. Like Jeff Bezos can't compete with that. He, look at him and all the people he's trampled on Didn't to get he, where he, he is. He said he's going to give away a lot of oh, his yeah, money, Oh, yeah, now he's moaning. He, he should have just paid his fucking taxes. <laughs> exactly. Let me get my violin out for you, Jeff. Just pay your fucking taxes and pay your workers <laughs> properly. Then you won't have the problem of having to worry what to do with your philanthropy. And philanthropy does not work. There's fucking years of academic research on this. If you look at philanthropy or just paying taxes, which has the biggest social impact, paying bloody Taxes. A friend of mine, Hugh, years ago, told me to read The Prince by Machiavelli. That's a very profound book. If you want to understand why the world is, how it is, that book's deeply fascinating and nothing has changed in 600 odd years. We still got people set up these businesses. And even if they intend to do good, over time they become a prince. And then the whole mindset changes because being a prince is fucking nice initially. But what you've done when you become a prince, you've put yourself above everybody else. So what are you going to do to stop yourself from becoming a prince? That's a great question. So that's baked into everything that we do. So if you look on my LinkedIn profile, I'm not a founder. I'm not a CEO. I don't have any kind of like hierarchical job titles. There aren't any of that. I've got one area of responsibility, which is the model that we use. So if it breaks the model, it doesn't happen. The whole way that we've developed Brain Badge, it's not ours. It belongs to the three beautiful organisations who've co-created it with us. If it wasn't for everybody else in these other organisations, it wouldn't have got anywhere. So if somebody wants to go, Rich, that was amazing, here's a nice award, I'm just going to say no, thank you. Because it wasn't me, it was us. Because like I say this in my workshops. Sometimes I do my workshops and some people go, oh, I wish I was neurodiverse now. You no, know? you don't. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you fucking don't. What you want to do is understand that your cognition's beautiful and you need to accept it for who it is. But the other thing is the world would be shit if it was full of people like me because nothing would get finished. It wouldn't because that's my thing. I'm great at starting. I'm awful at finishing. And so how our organisation is constructed is like on a micro scale, that chain of cognition. So it's like there's me and then there's Kate who's the next one down the line and then there's Sarah who's the next one down the line. And they bring just a unique kind of cognition to it that I've not got. When I started working with Kate, right, and I needed a website, Dean, and Kate's a beautiful communicator. And I reached out to her and I said, can you help me? And she just said, yes. And initially we'd talk, she'd go away, she'd write something and she'd send it to me and go, is it okay? Now, I knew if I'd have read that, I'd have wanted to pick it apart because that's just what my brain does. But rather than doing that, I've, this is one of my growth mindset things. I never even read what she sent. I just go, it's fucking awesome, just do it. <laughs> 
And the great thing is now she's just empowered. She just writes beautifully and confidently. And it's amazing. She's thriving and it's because she's just fucking amazing at that and so much better than me. And it's great for me because I don't have to think about that shit or worry about that shit. She just does amazing. Do you have any neurotypical people in the observatory? Oh, yeah. yeah. Kate probably classes herself as more neurotypical people. Person, she's not. Just the same. <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. My partner, Amanda who's the most amazing person that I know. She's the chair. She's like phenomenally ultra capable, neurotypical, but just, yeah. So it, it's the complete range. I think it's Kate, about people working together, right? Not one is better than the other. It's about if we can get the strengths of all these different people in the different way that they think, then yeah. we're all for the better. Because that's when you've got that engagement, when you where you own it and it's yours and... You don't have to check and you're free to fuck up as well. That's another thing. Because Every, everyone who feels like they've got to buy into whatever organisation they're in will always feel like a bit more responsibility, but also a bit more emotional attachment to the work as well. And then yeah. better outcomes. Because I think within healthcare, we've only been able to get away with how things are in healthcare for so long because we don't necessarily have all like the fast innovation like you can get in other businesses. But what we did have was the emotional attachment. Yeah. I think in healthcare, a lot of people go into it with this sort of emotional attachment to the work. I'm doing this because I want to help people. Very obvious thing, right? In healthcare, a lot of people go in to become doctors, nurses, dietitians, pharmacists, whatever, because they like a bit of science and they like helping people. Yeah. But I think what we're seeing more and more in the last couple of years specifically is this worse <laughs> burnout and stuff like that. And people are beginning to lose that emotional attachment to their work and yeah. people are leaving in droves. I talk to nurses, a lot of the nurses my age, probably every second nurse is, oh, I am thinking about quitting and going to Australia because more money, better lifestyle. And I'm like, yeah, good on you. Probably should. I might join you. Yeah. <laughs> But that's, this is why I believe what we're doing as an organization is so important. We need to get better at delivering sustainable organizational change at a pace. Begin applying it to businesses, begin applying it to education, begin applying it to health. My partner calls me a radical optimist. You look around the world, it seems a bit fucked. We've got everything that we need to unfuck all of these problems. So I play a game, right? I've played it thousands of times. Used to play it with kids at the Mind Lab, teachers all over New Zealand, played it with corporates. It's a beautiful game. It's basically you throw balls around for four rounds and see how you can improve, right? It's supposed to be about iterative sprints and self-organizing teams, but that game is fucking profound because it doesn't matter who I play it with or where I play it. At the end of four rounds, a good score is about 100. And the weird thing is, everybody plays the game the same way. And then all I do is drop a bit of a thought bomb on people's heads and give them three more rounds to play. The record is 10,000. So that game to me is a metaphor for how we're doing in terms of innovation and solving problems. So what's this thought bomb that you give them? I just tell them what the record is. I say, I say, I played this game for two years and then I had a bit of an epiphany. I was like, everybody plays the game the same way. And because I was, once again, autism special interest, fucking used to photo and video everything that I did at the Mind Lab, I was fascinated in. So I used to take hundreds of photos and videos. I was Mind Lab for like kids or was it for you? Oh, it's the best school (laughs) I've ever been to. I can't tell you how much I love that place and the people who were there because it was... I might cry, it's had the most profound impact on my life in all sorts of ways. Genuinely, yeah, I experienced that work could be this joyous thing. It was beautiful. but So everybody plays that game the same way, and I had to understand why. It took me a long time to understand why. The answer's dead simple. It's because of how we've built school. So Foucault, who's a 1920s post-structural philosopher, talks about the role of institutions in society, writes about schools, prisons, and mental institutions, which everybody should just stop and think a little bit about. He groups those three institutions together. And he wrote that at a real fundamental level, school's about three things, compliance, conformity, and control. And that to me was like, that's what's going on every time I play this game. It's this compliance and conformity and control. Every time I start the game, People have profound insights into unlocking more potential. Somebody will be like, why don't we just? But then the compliance police kick in and go, you can't do that. It's not in the rules. They don't even listen to these different ideas and test them. And it's only when I drop a bomb and go, the record's 10,000, 
that they're like, holy shit. And they actually go back and start rereading the rules. And then they actually try to start innovating and doing things differently and listening to different ideas. So, Is the record actually 10,000 or do you yeah. just say that? <laughs> no, 10,000. It was held by bankers, which I hate because, not that I hate bankers, I just hate the business model because it's basically move money around, make rich people richer. So it was a team of bankers and they held the record for four years, but it was a team of accountants beat it really recently. So I'm quite pleased about that. Yeah, 10,000, bar change, not exactly within a couple of hundred. Yeah, the record's 10,000. That's the that's this untapped people cognitive potential that every single organization everywhere around the world is sitting on. It's not, the school system's not destroyed it. It's just flattened it out. It's still there. And I firmly believe that what has certifications like a game mechanic just to help organizations start unlocking that power that's there. And it's there's no secret source to it. Psychological safety, cognitive diversity, practicing agile, being lean, done. What was it about working at MindLab that was so different and so good for you? It was just inclusive. What what makes them inclusive? Because it was a startup, we made our own culture, which was amazing. So I wasn't coming into some pre-existing environment. It was changing. And I'll never forget my first day. I walked in, I was on the education team, and this beautiful person who's the most beautiful man I know, my friend Damon, he walked up to me. He was like, hi, I'm Damon. I'm bipolar. I'm dyslexic. I'm really awful at sending emails and some days I'll come in and I won't want to talk to anybody and I don't want you to ask me any questions. And it was frigging weird. It was, I didn't even, I don't know, My I think my chin was on the floor because I'd never experienced that before. What he did was just make it okay to be yourself. And I'd spent my whole life trying to be good at all of this shit that I wasn't good at. I can't organise myself to save my life. I hate writing. And actually, just culturally, it was okay to do that there. I mean, I used to share Francis's PA, Melissa. I'd come to work every day not having a fucking clue what I was supposed to be doing. And every morning, Melissa would be, you've got this, you've got this, you've got this, what do you need? And just not having to think about that. There's another woman, Debs, who used to help me. I became responsible for all the school stuff and... Once again, like Deb's, all the organising, his stuff that I'm totally incapable of, it was all just taken away from me and somebody else who was amazing at it used to do it. And it was joyous because for the first time ever, I was just doing pretty much all the stuff that I was amazing at and hardly any of the stuff that I was shit at. So I stopped going to work. It wasn't work. I used to hang out with fucking awesome people doing cool shit. Absolute joy. Even though I had that, though, I think it took it was four or five years of working there before I told Francis about myself. And the only reason I actually told Francis was I used to be on the board of my daughter's school. And one evening, we ended up excluding this kid who was basically ADHD. And I'd never told anybody. The only person who knew about my ADHD was my ex-wife. Nobody knew because I, I just it was like, that explains a lot, but it's not good news kind of thing. Anyway, long story short, that really impacted me and I ended up telling Francis and she did this beautiful Francis thing. She went, oh, I knew. And I was like, shit. <laughs> was that obvious? <laughs> well, I thought I was like, I thought I was better at hiding it. But she went, oh, I didn't know what you got, but I knew you were different. And that's why I wanted you to work for me. And that took everything that I thought about who I was and my diversity and literally just turned it on its head. It was validating the fact that being neurodiverse brought value to the yeah. company, that you were valued as a person yeah, for the I way know, you were. I just thought it was all just part of my fucking problems. I never even considered it had any value to anybody. And that's that a pretty was, simple thing, right? That It costs nothing to do that. It's literally turned my world upside down in all the best kind of ways. And that set me on this journey. In the media about ADHD at the moment, there's been quite a bit about the difficulty of accessing a diagnosis and yeah. therefore accessing medical treatment. Yeah. And part of that is like a medicalization model of ADHD, saying that this is a disease that needs to be treated. Yeah. What do you think about that? There was some GP in the media who's gotten into a bit of trouble because So one is been- a fucking hero because you can't get, the system is shit. You can't get, tri- like, it's like how long are people waiting in the South Island where he was from? 
like over a year in the public sector. So he's a he should be fucking lauded for getting off his fucking arse and actually helping to solve the problem. First of all, I've gone through the whole medication journey, right? The only time I need medication now is when I'm working in a space that I'm cognitively not designed for. Like, is it a place where you feel that you almost have to be more where I've got to do some fucking boring, (laughs) boring fucking shit that I've got no interest in? Unfortunately, as our organisations growing and transforming, that's disappearing. So I haven't taken what was mine, concerto, not concerto, is it? I don't know, whatever, railing, whatever. I haven't had that for over a year now. I don't need it because I'm working in a way that I'm suited for. So I don't need medicating. Do I agree with medication? Shit, yeah. If you've got a kid that's been put through that fucking school box that's not suited for them and medication helps, take the medication. But what we're about is changing the world. So if we were in this world where all businesses' education was neurodiverse inclusive, do you think we would still need stimulant medication for people who are neurodiverse or with ADHD? No, absolutely not. Because I only need medication when I'm doing stuff that I wasn't designed to. When I'm working in the habitat that I've evolved to fit in, I don't need medication. I'm totally engaged. I'm getting that dopamine buzz all of the time, naturally. At the moment, you put different kids in this system that's not designed for them, and that system causes real deep trauma and that's what has the profoundly negative impact on people's lives that's it in my experience it's i've got complex post-traumatic stress disorder and it's basically because i went through a system that didn't understand me and told me this false narrative about myself and made me feel broken and wrong are there any simple things that schools now or organizations now can do to help make environments more neurodiverse inclusive The first step is actually creating a psychological safe place to listen and understand. That's it. Making it safe for people to voice their concerns and making them feel more valued. Just to say, this is me and these are my needs. That's it. Like for ADHD kids going through a school system where even today you're forced to sit for hours in a day in a classroom. Why do kids need medication to fucking be able to do that? You would not believe the amount of coping strategies that I've developed to be able to sit still. I can sit still for hours with you because we're having a really deep, engaging conversation. What are the consequences of us getting it wrong? Getting it wrong for kids with ADHD? I mean, we live in them. Trauma, prison, drug abuse. Like, if you've got ADHD, they call it the school prison pipeline. I am fucking lucky that I am not dead or in prison because a lot of my friends who I was involved with in the past, they have gone to prison. They are dead. Those are the consequences. It's the ultimate, you pay the ultimate price because you don't fit in that box and it's so wrong. The justice system, there's no acknowledgement in the justice system about the role that neurodiversity plays. None. I went on Stats New Zealand to look up some figures and I was actually really surprised. So people who identify as kind of gender diverse in New Zealand, it's only 14% of the population. It's like neurodiverse people, we're like at least double that. At least we're a huge community that's just been, we're just totally marginalised, totally left out. And it's not really a community if most of those people probably don't know that they're... It's not. This is the problem as well. <laughs> There's all these things where I'm like, oh, gosh, maybe I've got ADHD. Why do I think this way? Why do I always lose my keys? Why am I always doing like a million things? Some of my friends probably listening to this will be like, oh, yep, we've seen it. We've known it for a while. <laughs> yeah, but I think going back to when I found out, I think one of the things that I felt profoundly stupid because I was working with kids, Right. And a lot of the kids that I was working with at the time were neurodiverse kids, ADHD kids, right? And I'd never joined the dots. <laughs> never joined the dots. I never can distinctly remember that. Just once again, this feeling of, oh, stupid. How the fuck couldn't you have noticed? But I didn't know what it was. I did, I'd like, or I thought I knew what it was, but I'd never considered that that was why I'd felt like a fucking alien for all my life. I don't know. It's, it's, it's 
good in some ways to get that diagnosis, but once again, it's perpetuating the status quo and the status quo definitely You don't need the diagnosis if the environment was in a way such that you'd feel included anyway. It's only a problem when it starts being a problem, isn't it? Mm. I'd say if your experience of having ADHD has been that you've succeeded in education, that you succeed in a career, why is it even something that you need to worry about? It's get a fucking, what's it? Get a tile so you can find your keys and everything's okay. That's what I've done. That's what I got for Christmas is an ear tech. Yeah, that's it. But imagine what life could be if it was just valued as this beautiful thing that it is. Well, thank you so much for sharing about your story with your own experiences with ADHD and about what the observatory are trying to do to change the way we look at neurodiversity and hopefully we can make better environments and business and education so that we actually make the most of having people with different cognitions because I think we're all going to do better. I mean, we're not broken. No. We're beautifully different. We're here for a reason. Yeah. One final last question. Okay, if you could choose to have anything you want for your next meal, what would you have? Not a meal, because I was... See, my parents different... were restauranteurs. Oh, so, I see. So we started so off fancy. Poor, but became middle class. I love spam, right? So I'm not fancy. <laughs> I'm quite happily sit down to a tin of spam. But I also have got an extravagant taste. <laughs> my favourite meal, I'm not actually going to say it, because actually these days it's politically incorrect and I probably wouldn't eat it. Go on. Tornados Rossini, which is a beautiful steak with a foie gras on top. What makes it like? Oh, PC? God, because of how they farm in foie gras, horrible. They force feed corn oh. into geese. So it's, it, it, these days, it's, it would be unethical to eat it, although it tastes fucking phenomenal. But it's <laughs> one of those things. Glad I got to experience it, but. I wouldn't, I don't think I'd eat it ever again. So maybe that. Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll try another question. What would be like your favorite dinosaur? I don't know. I'm not that into dinosaurs. <laughs> would there be a neurodiverse dinosaur? <laughs> Whichever dinosaur had ADHD, that would be my favorite. Because I bet there would be one. <laughs> There's probably a whole load of ADHD dinosaurs. Favorite but there's a whole ADHD thing, right? Where you have all those different interests. Yeah. I, I think that's part of it. What's your weirdest interest? Oh my God, that's a, all sorts of stuff. I'm fascinated by steam engines, steeplejacking. I have this weird sort of dark fascination with National Socialist Movement in Germany. It's like, how the fuck did the world let that happen? And I'm deeply fascinated by that. I have more than a passing interest in organic chemistry, shall we say. Not that I don't use drugs anymore, but I do actually use some drugs. I'm quite into magic mushrooms and a bit of psychedelic cactus because actually I've got some problems because the world's fucked me over and that shit helps. So, yeah, I'm interested in that. I like yeah, that. Yeah, watch the space. I have a favourite plant. Yeah, San Pedro cactus. Oh, That's, yes. There you go. Very good. <laughs> that would be my favourite. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Rich. You're welcome. Thank you. It was great. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titter to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Um.